0: Welcome to the new podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I'm Isabel Moreno-Hay, Clinic Director of the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and any other associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AAOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. Before we get started, I would like to thank Dr. Steven Scrivani. Chair of the Continuing Education Oversight Committee of the AOP, for his support and guidance on this new project of educational podcast, in which we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. In today's podcast, I have the great pleasure of interviewing one of my good friends and colleagues at the Orofacial Pain Center of the University of Kentucky, Dr. Christina Perez. Dr. Perez has a very unique background since she's one of the few dentists who's double board certified in both pediatric dentistry and orofacial pain. She's currently the program director of the postgraduate program in pediatric dentistry and chief of the division of pediatrics at the College of Dentistry of the University of Kentucky. Thanks to this unique background, Dr. Perez has created an orofacial pain clinic which is dedicated exclusively to children and adolescents. In this podcast, we will be asking Dr. Perez to share with us her experience with the Children and Adolescent or Official Pain Clinic, and specifically, how to manage adolescents that suffer from temporomandibular disorders. I hope you will enjoy this interview, and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Perez. Thank you for having me, Dr. Manot. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Perez, I would like to start by asking you, what are the differences between adults, children, and adolescents when they experience pain in general and or artificial or pain in particular?
1: Um,
0: well, that's a great question because I feel
1: like a lot of practitioners sort of stay away from treating children with TM disorders just because of this particular difference. So children perceive pain a little differently than adults do. And so what may be a temporal mandibular disorder in a young child can be explained as a bellyache. So parents learn to to see this very clearly at the beginning, but a lot of practitioners don't. So that's one of the important things is how they perceive pain. The second thing is how they relate pain. So children have a hard time explaining when they feel pain and how they express when they're feeling pain. So for example, a child who has pain in their masseter muscles so the chewing muscles um, they can wake up in the morning and say that they don't want to have breakfast and they wouldn't give you more explanation that I just don't want to have that and it could be because they have pain in their masticatory muscles so that's another important thing to to be able to understand and ask when a child is in pain from the masticatory musculature. And uh, finally, a lot of parents can tell you this, but maybe practitioners cannot. Sometimes there um, isn't really pain, but that children are looking for secondary gain. So it's something to be aware of and to understand when a child is expressing pain, there might be something that they're looking to gain. And it could be something as simple as just attention.
0: hmm so, in your clinical practice, Dr. Perez, what are the official pain conditions that you manage in pediatric patients? Well, we um, we created
1: an adolescent clinic, uh, adolescent TMD clinic in the orofacial pain clinic, and as you know, um, we have one clinic um, a week, and it's been going on for about five years. We saw that this was a necessity when we looked back and did a chart review and realized that there were a lot of adolescents coming into our clinic, so we decided. Um, that because I had both specializations, pediatric dentistry and or pain, that we could create a clinic just in this area and, um, and we would have plenty of patients. So we do have plenty of patients. Um, now, to answer your question, we treat um, a lot of conditions, a large array of conditions, but... Um, As you know, we don't have a lot of little tiny kids. We see a lot of adolescents. That's why the clinic is more an adolescent clinic than a child an adolescent clinic. I think in the last five years that we've been treating patients, we probably have a handful of kids that are less than 10 years of age. Um, And those kids have very particular conditions that are not the common everyday thing that we see in our adolescents, whereas the rest of our patients are constituted for the most part in kids that are from 13 to 18 years of age. And um, the conditions that we treat there are an array of things. So from muscle pain conditions, temporomandibular joint conditions, uh, we have uh, children that have um, degenerative conditions of the jaw joint, as
0: well as just pain from tooth wear. And how prevalent are temporomandibular disorders in pediatric patients? Is it more or less frequent than in adults? Um, That's also a great question. So, temporal mandibular disorders
1: vary widely. So, if you guys were to look at the literature, you'd see some studies say 3%, and then other studies are going to say 70%. So, that is a wide variation, which really leads us to believe that there's not a very good way of assessing TM disorders in the pediatric population. Um, As you know, DCTMB is a great criteria to use in adults, but in children, although it's been created for children, it really hasn't been validated or used enough for us to um, be able to see studies that are using it consistently. So for right now, the um, prevalence is very wide and very varied. Um, But at the same time, it tells us that it does exist. So children and adolescents do have temperamental disorders. And it seems that it's less frequent than adults, but it does increase as age progresses. So um, again, we do see it in children, the... um, criteria needs to be a little more cleaned up. Um, but we we do see it in children, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: And are there any differences in prevalence between boys and girls? Well, our clinic, interestingly enough, we're looking at
1: um, the kids that we've seen since we started this adolescent clinic um, in the Orifacial Pain Center at UK. And it seems like clearly there is not a difference when we have children that are Um, that have not gone through puberty yet, but then after puberty, definitely there seems to be
0: more of girls than boys present in our clinic and in the literature as well. Mm -hmm. And how do you recommend to diagnose TMD in pediatric patients? So we've um, tried to
1: use different um, ways of diagnosing this in, in our population we, we recommend that everyone starts with a good um, questionnaire. So we want to make sure that when we see a pediatric patient, we ask them certain questions, like, for example, is there difficulty opening your mouth? Do you hear joint noises in your jaw joint? Do you have pain in or around your ears or cheeks? Do you have pain when chewing, talking, or using your jaws? Do you have pain when opening your mouth wide or when yawning? Has your bite felt uncomfortable? Does your jaw ever lock or go out of place? Have you ever had an injury to your jaw, to your neck, um, or to your head? And then we also want to ask about if there's been previous treatment for temporomandibular disorders. So this is a really quick screening tool that we can use in our patients. Now, our patients already come with the complaint of an orofacial pain condition or pain, so we already start out with that. But a good screening tool to use in all your patients would be the questions that I just asked. Um, when we see our patients in the orofacial pain clinic, we do have a questionnaire that's related to the pain. And... Um, how prevalent it is, how um, intense, and how they would describe it, if it's associated to any other activities, for example, chewing. Um, and then we ask a little bit about uh, clicking and popping of the jaw joints and information on that as well. Once we have our Questionnaire filled out, then we go and do a and a very thorough exam. So the examination is very important, as you guys know, because that'll give us the the source of the pain, which is what we're looking for. So we start out, like I said, with a questionnaire, trying to understand where the pain is coming from. Um, there is a good um, important thing to to talk about. There is that is the child filling out the questionnaire form, or is the parent? So you know we have to be careful because sometimes. The parent really doesn't know when it hurts. And so we have to try to find, um, do an interview with that form in hand to make sure that we know exactly if the pain and all the characteristics of the pain and not just the mom's report once we have the child in the chair, then we, like I said, we do the exam and we're um, very cautious of not really skipping any of the steps that we would do in an adult. So we want to make sure we palpate the joint musculature. We want to make sure we evaluate the joint correctly, not only for joint noises, but also for pain um, coming from the jaw joint. We look at range of motion. We make sure that there's no discrepancies there. We evaluate the tooth structures and hard tissues and make sure there's not a lot of wear, things that could give us an indication that there is overuse of the jaw joints, um, and that you know gives us
0: information about
1: how to make a good diagnosis.
0: Mm-hmm. And how how do the young individuals, the young patients, report pain? Is it something? Is it easy for them to report? Yes, this is hurting. Or how, what are the cues that you can use to know if your patient is in pain?
1: Well, that's a great question because when we have little tiny ones, and I said that's not very prevalent, but sometimes even adolescents have a hard time expressing when something hurts, Um, and what we usually recommend is uh, first to try to look at their expressions, so not necessarily ask, does this hurt? A lot of kids will shy away from that and just say, yes, it hurts, before we even start because... They don't want it to hurt more, clearly. So um, what we do is we try to use, for example, protective eyewear that's transparent and not dark so we can look at the way their eyes open when we palpate a muscle, for example, that is you know, a painful muscle. Um, and we try also uh, to talk in their terms. Um, a lot of kids won't really respond to, you know, does this hurt? But you can say, is, is this the pain you're here for? Is this the condition? Or is this what it feels like when it really, really hurts?
0: So, those are just cues that we can, mm-hmm. we can use. And what are the etiological factors associated with TMD in pediatric patients? So, that is a long question and we mm-hmm. could go really deep into it, but let's talk a
1: little bit in general. So, the etiological factors associated with TMD, um, you know, the big ones we consider, first of all, is trauma. So, trauma is a big one because it's one of the ones that has been really proven. So, we know that there's macro trauma, so car accidents, big things like that, um, that definitely can cause a logical pain or dysfunction in the temporomandibular disorder and temporomandibular joint and structures associated to it. But there's another one that's pretty important, and that's considered microtrauma. So when we talk about microtrauma, we are talking about parafunctional activity. So for example, clenching of the teeth, grinding, or um, known as Brooksism, lip and teeth, biting, nail biting, and even abnormal posture of the mandible can be considered a parafunctional habit. So those are the big ones. Trauma is one of the big ones, micro and macro trauma to start out with. Um, After we talk about trauma, then we definitely have to consider occlusion. Now, this was a big one. It's always been a big one because we always thought that if we fix the occlusion, we would take care of the temporomandibular disorder. However, time has passed and it's really told us that it's more important what what you do with your occlusion than the occlusion itself. So if we, have, we can have a perfectly class 1 um, occlusion, but if we grind on it day and night, then obviously we may have more of a risk of having TM disorders than a patient that does nothing wrong with, that does not overuse their occlusion, and their occlusion may be not a class 1 occlusion. So um, we, at the end, after a lot of studying and things, we've noticed that um, occlusion really isn't a big factor um, for TM disorders. There are some that can be considered risk factors. So we have, for example, if patients, young patients have skeletal open bites, overjets greater than 7 millimeters, um, class, class 3 malocclusions, or unilateral posterior crossbites are occlusal conditions that can be considered of a higher risk of eventually developing TM disorders, but not necessarily just a causative factor straight out. Um, And like I said, functional occlusion is how you use the occlusion that you were given. And um, that is also an important thing to look at because um, if you have an occlusal interference, for example, that causes your jaw joint to shift into a certain position, that may be a condition that could be considered a risk factor for developing TMD. So you want to make sure that something like that is treated because it causes your jaw joint and your masticatory system to be in a bit of an unstable position. (laughs) So aside from occlusion, um, we also have systemic and genetic factors to consider. So there are um, cases in which we have children that have connective tissue disease um, or joint hypermobility that are also definitely at more risk of developing TM disorders. Um, Genetic factors have also been looked at, and there's a couple of genes um, that have been found through the OPERA study. Those that work in artificial pain are familiar, and um, certain genes have been found to have a relationship with some artificial pain conditions. Um, The connective tissue diseases that I spoke of at the beginning, for example, rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile idiopathic arthritis, are conditions that are related to temperamental disorders. And finally, we can't um, forget the psychological aspect. So when we look at adults with TMD, there's always a portion that is dedicated to the psychological um, condition of the patient and how that relates to their pain. Well, in children, you know, we can't forget that that's also something to look into. So when we assess a temporal mandibular disorder, we also want to make sure that the psychological factors that the child is going through at that moment have also been looked at and evaluated.
0: And do you have in your clinical practice, Dr. Perez, any specific tools for the screening of the psychosocial factors in pediatric patients? Yes, that's a great question. So we started looking at
1: um, the fact that we had a whole array of questionnaires for adult populations, but we said if the child is or if the patient is less than 18 years of age, we weren't giving them anything. So um, this maybe was a couple of years ago that we decided that we would, um, with the help of our psychologist, our clinical psychologist in the artificial pain clinic, determine which of these have been validated for children. And we have three, if I'm not mistaken, um, the PSQI, and there's one for pain management, pain perception, and there's a third one that we use. In the clinic, so I think that we're evaluating these patients much better than we were before, and it's um, it's making us a little better in um, in evaluating all the aspects, especially the psychological ones um, in treating these kids.
0: In going back to another of the etiological factors that you had mentioned, the micro trauma, what about sleep bruxism? What should we tell the parents when they come to the dental office concerned because their kids are grinding their teeth at night? Um,
1: yes, bruxism is a big one. And any of the practitioners that are listening in or even patients know that this is a question that you will be asked um, if you work with any child at all. So a bruxism is a strong, habitual, non-functional contact between occlusal yeah. surfaces. It can occur while waking at sleep. And so I'm glad that you asked specifically about sleep bruxism, because daytime bruxism is a, just a very different entity, and it has very different characteristics. So when we talk about sleep bruxism, which is what we need to talk about... Um, It is very prevalent in children. Anybody who has children will tell you they grind their teeth at night, especially when they're little. Um, And usually what I try to tell parents is that it's relatively normal for your child to grind their teeth at night. But we also have to be very aware that there are cases in which this bruxism can be very damaging. Um, So we have to evaluate tooth grinding. So if your child is grinding their teeth at night, but their tooth wear is insignificant, then, you know, we possibly can say it's going to go away in a certain amount of years and it'll be just fine where other kids grind their teeth down to nothing so we have children that have wear on their teeth that so we can see the pulp chambers and so they're very sensitive they don't want to have ice cream they feel very sensitive to any foods and so those cases have to be analyzed a little bit better that would be a good um, case to take to your pediatric dentist and, and ask or evaluate about um, so bruxism like i said can cause tooth wear it can cause periodontal um, damage and articular or muscle damage as well. So we have to be careful with it, but for the most part, um, Brooksism is relatively normal and part of the neuronal development of children, and we expect it to be present until about eight or nine years of age, which is when you know we say that the number of neurons is the number of neurons you will have. And... Um, and the connections being made are relatively stable. So we don't see a lot of bruxism after nine, but up to nine, we see a lot of it. Um, bruxism can be damaging because the, the the force that we exert over our teeth is very intense. It can be up to four times um, greater than what we can physically do voluntarily. So it's a lot of force. Um, the positions in which we grind our teeth is not usually the most stable position so we can damage our teeth and our joints and our muscles that way so if brooksism is something that happens every now and then and it doesn't seem to be causing any damage and the child is less than nine years of age i would probably tell the parents that there's really nothing to worry too much about but um if the uh, bruxism is very intense, if it's every single night, and wakes everybody up in the house, and we see damage on the teeth, or the child wakes up with pain in their masseter muscles, um, and have or has any other um, signs or symptoms, then it's time to consult and um, to ask further into it.
0: And how do we manage a patient that has TMD, a children and adolescent that has TMD? How different it is from the management of adult individuals? So the
1: management of, of adolescents, uh, for the most part adolescents, because that's what we see more in our clinic, um, is, has to be multifactorial, just because this condition is multifactorial. So we usually treat the child um, not from just one aspect. We try to be—we um, try to use all that we have, all our tools that we have to be able to treat our, our kids. Um, but there are important things that we have to consider before even thinking about treating a child that we have diagnosed with TMD. So one of the first things that we have to consider is that our objective is to decrease pain and adverse loading to the jaw joints and the masticatory system. We have to um, aim to restore function. And we have to try for the kids to be able to resume the activities of daily living that perhaps they're not being able to do. So um, the initial premise is that we really should not do anything um, that is irreversible in children. So that's very important. All our treatment, especially the initial portion of them, should be reversible. Um, Secondarily, surgery is really not indicated as first-line treatment at all in any of the TMD cases and should be avoided as much as possible just because a child and adolescents are still growing and we don't want to do anything that will change this pattern of growth. And lastly, it's important to indicate that children and adolescents that have signs of TMD, really, a large portion of them do not require treatment. So we're looking at kids that have, for example, temporomandibular joint clicks and pops, The majority of these children do not need treatment. Only about 3% of the kids that come to our clinic with some type of pain condition require aggressive treatment. So that's the initial and the important part. Now, when we um, talk about treating adolescents that have TM disorders, we always like to start with some self-help suggestions um, we have an array of different things that we can do, and we select the ones that we feel that our patients are not only more inclined to do, but things that can actually help their condition. Uh, we talk about using moist heat or cold to help, especially muscle pain conditions. Um, secondarily, we um, talk about diet and what foods are um, better for them to choose? So, for example, when we tell them about eating a soft, pain-free diet in an adolescent and children, it's very important to give them a list of things that they are allowed to eat in this soft diet. Um, because a lot of them will say, "Well, for example, gum—that's soft. You know—is that something that I can eat?" That's a good one, right? <laughs> but um, in most cases, we don't want them to overuse. Their musculature, so we don't want them to have gum in those cases. So, diet, we work with diet and we're very, very explicit about what type of foods they can eat. We talk to them about jaw function and how we want them to not pop their jaw voluntarily, not to show their friends, hey, look what I can do. So to be very um cognizant about not making their jaw joint sounds, um, oral habits and how we want them to try to avoid biting their fingernails um, or chewing on other pencils, things like that. Um, and that's a hard thing to do because that's something that's very ingrained in their kids' and everyday life. So we try to work with oral habits. Um, sleep hygiene is a big one because a lot of our kids have never really been taught how to sleep. And sleep is so important for um, a child to be able to heal. So we help them by giving them information on um, on how to sleep better, we talk about basic things like you know sleep in your room. A lot of kids don't have that ingrained, um, and if they fall asleep watching TV in the living room, that's where they're asleep all night. And so we have to make sure that they understand that um, the benefits of sleeping in their own room, turning off the lights. Um, and I always like to give parents information about how damaging it is for a child to have their phones charging in their bedroom as well as their computers or laptops or iPads. Um, All of these electronics um, are taking away from good night's sleep of our children. So i like to give them information on why this is not good practice and how we should just leave our bedroom for sleeping and nothing else. Um, When we finish talking about sleep hygiene, we also go into... um, The negative effects of caffeine, for example, that's related to diet. And finally, we use physical self-regulation. Now, this is a very special program that we have in our clinic, and that's guided by our clinical psychologists. So it is a three-session program, and it's very good to help our kids um, learning exercises to be able to reduce tension, to be able to control their clenching and grinding of their teeth. Um, They uh, learn to use different breathing patterns, Um, they talk about sleep as well and how to create patterns for good sleep, Um, they talk about water consumption, good foods to be used for pain control, and uh, physical activity. So all those things are included in the physical self-regulation program and I feel like it's very helpful. So that forms part of the self-help suggestions that we give our patients. Um, A lot of them are also referred to physical therapy which um, helps us so much, Um, and we have a number of um, physical therapists that are very well-trained in specifically TMD disorders, so we like to refer to them. Um, Pharmacological management is um, something that we do use in adolescents and children. Um, A lot of anti-inflammatory medications that we use are very helpful in many conditions related to TM disorders. Um, We do use analgesics as well, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory drugs, um, corticosteroids in some cases, and in other cases, some um, sleep aids. So the important thing about NSAIDs when I talk to colleagues about prescribing for children and adolescents is the fact that they're not very compliant. Um, So there is a number of different NSAIDs that we can use that work very well in the jaw joint as in other joints. The important thing is that we want to make sure that if we prescribe something to be taken for a number of days we want to make sure that that happens so if we prescribe ibuprofen for example and we want the child or adolescent to take it four times a day there is a very important likelihood that this kid will forget so I try to suggest that we look for something that is one or even two takes a day with a longer half-life therefore The patient will remember and will have better results from our treatment. After pharmacological
0: management, we
1: obviously do occlusal guards as well.
0: Talking about occlusal appliances, what type of occlusal appliance do you recommend in pediatric patients? So occlusal appliances are a very good tool to have um,
1: just because... As you know, there are a number of reasons that they're beneficial, even placebo is is a good reason to use them. Um, Usually what we recommend in our patients is a hard acrylic appliance, usually maxillary, um, with good contacts and um, being aware that if the child has not finished growth, then there is a potential to alter this growth. So we have to always be very careful. So the characteristics of the occlusal appliances that we usually do, um, they are hard acrylic. So there's a number of publications out there that use soft bite guards, And what I found with soft bite guards is that they usually just want to make you bite more. So it's like putting a piece of gum in your mouth. You tend just to chew on it or to bite on it. So... Um, It's easy to see, for example, in athletic mouth guards, if you look at them, they're all going to be chewed up because it's sort of what your body wants to do with them. It's the same thing that if you have an Essex bite guard or a soft bite guard, um, it's easier for the system to want to chew on them than not to chew on them. So that's why we recommend a hard acrylic guard. Um, We want to make sure that it's full coverage and full coverage means that we want all the teeth to be included in this guard. Um, now, in kids that are going through mixed dentition phase, that's a little bit difficult because we have primary teeth that might be coming in, um, that might be, sorry, exfoliating, and then permanent teeth coming in in their place. So we have to be a little cautious of this and make sure that we um, place this appliance on teeth that have finished their eruption. Um, and then after that, um, we want to make sure that um, this full coverage appliance. Includes all the teeth, like I said. There are some out there that are um, partial coverage. And so we have to be aware that if we use a partial coverage appliance, for example, those that are from uh, incisor to incisor on the maxilla, um, it may be beneficial to decrease muscle force, but at the same time, there is a risk that it may cause other problems with uh, teeth that are super erupting or TM joint disorders that we don't want to happen. So that's why we consider that a full coverage appliance is a little bit more beneficial. We want to make sure that it is thick enough that it's going to decrease the ability of muscles to forcefully contract, uh, but not so thick that the patient won't wear them. So we consider about 2 to 3 millimeters of separation in the back molars, is sufficient and um, and this has the benefit of decreasing the amount of muscle contraction at the same time being comfortable enough to to talk with it in. Um, We want to make sure that these appliances have contacts on each and every tooth so that we don't have a change in the bite And so each tooth should contact. And then we really want these um, appliances to have canine guidance. So canine guidance is important because when um, the patient is grinding, like we said, very forcefully, then we want the tooth that is most prepared in the mouth to be able to withstand these forces. So if we look at a um, canine that we, for example, extracted, we see these very long roots um, and so this is a tooth that's positioned in the perfect place and has the longest crown-to-root ratio. So this is a tooth that's made to be used for grinding, if one could say that. Um, so we want the um, guidance to be a canine guidance. The, um, like we said, the mechanism of action of these appliances, obviously it protects the teeth um, because we know that the grinding might still continue, but at least the position in which we are grinding is going to be a little more stable um, so if structures are overloaded, at least we'll be in an orthopedically stable position. Um, the placebo effect is undeniable. That's always present. Um, so we, we do use orthopedic appliances or splints in children. We just are very cautious about their growth. And um, we want to make sure that we check them every three to six months to make sure that it's
0: not restricting growth transversely or longitudinally. How do you envision the development of this field in the future? So I think that um, this field has a lot of
1: potential, um, and I think that we all should be a little more aware of it. Um, there was a study that came out that showed that in many schools, the amount of hours dedicated to TMD and artificial pain was very minimum, um, just to comply with uh, CODA requirements almost um, fortunately, in our university, we have about 100 hours of teaching of artificial pain and TMD for our students, um, although that would be ideal for all the colleges in the States. I feel like that might be too much to ask, but I would like to see an increased um, amount of TMD in the curriculum for our DMD students. That would be a good start, um, and that would probably help um, for our a speciality, to be um, an accredited speciality um, recognized by CODA. And so that would be a good start. Thank you.
0: If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.